you brought it in, look under the chair. Friends, good morning. morning. I'm sorry I didn't get to greet most of you here today. I tried to get as many as I could, but I hope you're as excited about being here as I am today because today we begin a new series. Today we get to focus, uh, refocus our focus on something, on someone that will change your life here today. And friends, I want to I ask that you turn with me to the, the, the Pauline letter of Colossians. Colossians this morning. And while you are, uh, are going through Matthew and Mark, Luke and John and Acts and Romans and 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and there it is, I want to share with you a memory I had. And, it, and I think it really has a lot of application for where we're going here today. You see, my first pastor was in Niagara Falls, New York. And, uh, and, and one of the, the greatest things about living in Niagara Falls, you would think it is the falls, and they are amazingly gorgeous and wondrous, and you cannot help but lift your heart to God as you see the, the power and the wonder of it all. But the thing that was amazing to me was that the, the population was Italian, and they had the best food ever. I mean, it was Truly, I have eaten nowhere that is as good as the food I had in Niagara Falls. Fantastic stuff. But even better than that, there was a, an Air Force base in Niagara Falls, and there still is. I had a, a friend who was a pilot. He flew the C-130s. He used to go through these training exercises and refer to them as the F-130, a fighter. But it wasn't. It was a big UPS truck in the sky. And, uh, and it was really, really incredible that regardless of what you were doing on the yard, you had an air show all around you. F-16s flying around and uh, all kinds of unique aircraft. You'd get this guy that would stop in the air and then go backwards. And it wasn't even a helicopter. I mean, it was remarkable. And, uh, and as I think about that, there was a particular time because of this Air Force base, I had a number of friends on the base, and uh, they invited me to play golf one day. And so I went out and played golf. I found out I was uh, teeing up with a general. And, and I was friends with captains, and there was the major. But this guy was a general. And he was a nice guy. I remember he had a pretty good sense of humor, you know, kind guy. And, but, uh, but the thing I remember most uh, is not what I scored or whether I had a good shot or not that, that time, but watching my friends respond to this general. It was evident that the fact of being in this guy's presence changed their whole demeanor. They talked differently. They acted differently. And I'm guessing all of their thoughts were filled with the fact of, be careful, he's a general. And as I think about that and the transformation of my friends at the fact that they were in the presence of a general, how much more than you and I as followers of Jesus Christ, how much more should we respond in such manner as with him? You see, today, you may not realize it, but we're going to start something really exciting. The book of Colossians, a, Paul written, a letter written by the Apostle Paul that some have said is his greatest letter. And you say, well, David, it's not even that long. I mean, what about Romans? I mean, Romans. Do I need to say that again? Romans. <laughs> but the book of Colossians has a Christology, a focus on Christ 
like no other book in the Bible. I mean, you say, well, what about uh, the, the Gospels? I mean, good night, it's his life. There is no other book like Colossians except Ephesians because they're very similar, except uh, the focus of Ephesians is on Christ's body, but the focus of Colossians on the head of the body, Jesus. And friends, if there's anything I need this morning, it's more Jesus. It's a better understanding who he is and knowing what he has done and knowing how I ought to respond to him. Because, if, see, friends, that's what changes our lives. Well, today we're going to begin this study, a book that uh, has its focus on the person of Jesus. And I thought it would be important, before we dive in recklessly, to step back and take a look at the letter of Colossians and ask some really important questions that will give us our bearings as we navigate through this letter. And so this morning, it's, it's going to look a little different than the way we normally just dive in. We're going to ask some really important questions about this letter. And why don't we just begin with verse 1 here that will give us our diving board into this conversation here this morning. And the first question we're going to ask is, who wrote it? And the answer is God. God is the author of this letter. It was God who divinely inspired Paul. And by inspired, I don't mean he heard a good song and was highly motivated. I mean the Spirit of God moved in Paul's life using his personality and vocabulary. I'm excited to. Come on, give me five. You can't do a lap without giving me five. All right. Finish it off, baby. You too. There we go. See, are we excited this morning or what? I know I am. All right. So the Apostle Paul, the Spirit of God using this guy. Think about Paul. Look at here in verse 1. What does it say about him? Paul, an apostle. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. It seems rather innocuous. Uh, there's nothing special about this. I mean, Paul opens all his letters like this. You know, hey, it's me, and, uh, and by the way, i got a couple of other guys with me. But maybe we should just pause for a moment and take a look at the words that the Spirit of God inspired to be recorded and that God preserved for all these many years for you and I to understand. Paul, we know something about Paul you see, Paul called to be an apostle. An apostle is, is one who is sent. It is, it is uh, different than an, uh, a disciple. Certainly, uh, all of these things can be found in one person. Paul would certainly be named as a disciple of Jesus. A disciple is a follower, following the teaching, um, uh, uh, just walking in the path of, of the, his pattern. All of these things are true holding dearly the things that uh, Jesus held dear. But Paul is an, is an apostle, one who is called, sent. And, and Paul, we, well, one thing that we have about Paul that, that uh, we have about other disciples is that we have a bit of record of how he was called. If you were to turn to Acts chapter 9, you would read about Paul's calling. One of the things that we know so famously about Paul 
like we know about Peter always jumping in it, you know? Hey, I'm first. Let me go now. Is, is Paul was passionate. Paul, as a Jewish uh, follower uh, uh, of God, uh, uh, got off the path because of his passion. And he was pursuing Christians who he thought was doing harm to the name of God. They had created their own God, Jesus. And Paul was passionately following after these people, having them arrested, and some of them were murdered because of it. Paul was certainly a man of passion. And during this, these journeys of passion of Paul, on the road to Damascus, he had others with him and had this great, not a vision, the appearance of Jesus, risen Lord. And he says, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Paul says, what do you mean? I never saw you. I, I'm just your followers of the people, kind of roughly stated here. But Jesus called Paul to follow him that day. And he said a couple of things about him. That you're going to suffer for my sake. I'm going to show you how much you will suffer for my sake. And that he would be called to reach the Gentiles. Certainly would be an immediate abomination to Paul. No, I'm a Jew. I'm a Jew of a Jew. I can trace my lineage all the way back. I mean, I have followed this stuff since I was three and you want me to chase after the Gentiles? That is what Paul was sent to do. One of the things famously we know about Paul is his suffering. How he was arrested time and time and time again. How he was beaten and shipwrecked and threatened his life. People chasing him from town to town. He's just out preaching the gospel. And this Jewish consortium, they're chasing him causing trouble every step of the way. The Apostle Paul had a great calling that came with great obstacles, great, great enemies. And so it is the Apostle Paul that God is using to write this letter. Another thing we know about Paul is he's got a partner. His name is Timothy. We, we know that Paul wrote a couple of letters to Timothy. You have to go a little further in the New Testament to get to those guys. And we know that Timothy ultimately became the pastor at the church at Ephesus. We read about Ephesus in the book of Ephesians. We found out they were a loving church. I mean, they had some problems. We could also go to the revelation of Christ, the very last book of the Bible, and we see that Jesus addressed that church. And so Timothy, faithful follower of Christ and co-laborer with Paul, but one of the things you need to know about this letter is where it was written. We know who wrote it, but where was it written? The book of Colossians is one of the prison epistles of Paul. It doesn't mean he wrote about prison. It means he was in prison when he wrote it. And why was he in prison? It wasn't petty theft. It was preaching the gospel, my friends. Paul was preaching the gospel, and these people wanted to shut him up. And they had finally arrested him and took him to Rome. So here's Paul writing from a prison cell saying, you got to get you some of this. I mean, when you follow Christ with all your heart, I tell you, they're going to come after you. They're going to take cheap shots at you and high shots and low shots and every shot they can get off. But Paul would say it's worth it. It was Paul who wrote 
wouldn't consider the sufferings of this time to be compared to the glory that is yet to be revealed. In, to, the, uh, to the Corinthians, Paul wrote about his experience of God giving him a glimpse of heaven. And with that glimpse of heaven, he also gave him a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, just to keep him humble. Paul, what a, what a guy. You want to read a letter from this guy. That's the book of Colossians, the letter to the Colossians. Another interesting fact about Colossians, Paul didn't plant this church. But you, well, wait a minute, you know, he wrote this letter, it's got to be his church. It's not. There's no record of Paul ever being in Colossians. Read the book of Acts that talks about Paul's missionary journeys. When he goes to all these cities, preaches the gospel, and churches are planted here. But we saw no record of him being in Colossae. So Paul's writing to this church in Colossae, and he didn't even know half the people there. As a matter of fact, there are some, uh, some verses here in the book of Colossians that point that out. A letter seems to indicate it. Paul had never even visited this city. In Colossians chapter 2 and verse 1, For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, for as many as have not even seen my face in the flesh. In other words, I care about you. I just haven't met you yet. Now, there are other verses as well. No personal greetings are found in this book. You know, when you read any of his books, you get to the last chapter, and he's saying, hey, I want you to give my greetings to these people, and look out for this guy. And this guy here, you know, that I sent with a pap, you got to trust him. He's a faithful follower of Jesus. But in the book of this letter to the Colossians, there are no personal greetings. Paul knew none of these people, and yet he cared for them. Isn't that something? He was willing to suffer for such a church filled with people he didn't even know. <clears throat> Paul, Timothy, written in prison. No personal greeting. It was likely planted by Epaphras. You read about him in, the, in Ephesians, Philippians, a little reference to him. But Epaphras was a disciple of Paul, which means he was a follower of Christ, but came into a relationship with Christ through the ministry of Paul. And do you know what he did? You're not going to believe this. He put his trust in Christ, and then he started telling people, hey, my life has changed. you got to get you some of this. I mean, Jesus, he'll forgive you your sins. He'll give you new life. And yeah, I'd willing to stick my neck out for him, especially since he went to the cross for me. So we know a little bit about the author. But what about the recipients? I mean, who are these people anyway? Well, we have some clues here in verse 1, don't we? Paul. An apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy our brother. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. That's verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Well, the first thing we notice here is uh, something about Colossae. I mean, where is this city? What's going on with this city? Is there anything important about this city? Well, you may know that it was in the Lycus Valley. It was about 100 miles east of Ephesus. 
You see, one of the things about these letters that Paul wrote to these churches, they were often circular letters. I'm not talking about circular reasoning. I'm saying that one church received it, then they would pass it on to another church. And that church, after studying, it would pass it on. And if you look on the map at the back of your Bible and you see Ephesus and Colossae and Laodicea, they were all a bit of a circle in Asia Minor there. And the letters were passed from one to another. And while it may have been addressed to Colossae, it would have been read in Ephesus and Laodicea and all of these churches. And so Colossae, 100 miles from Ephesus, there, there was a, a meeting point of east and west in this area. All of the trade routes went through it. It was an important area of the Roman world. And at one time, all three cities were growing and they were prosperous. I mean, the money was in these cities. But ultimately, Colossae slipped into a second-rate position. Ultimately became what we refer to today as a small town. And these Colossians, they were born in a small town. No, we're not going there. Okay, so they were believers, we know. I mean, he refers to them as brothers. Now, brothers, not, you know, not as blood brothers, but as brothers in Christ. Because they have all trusted in Christ. They are now a family. And so we know these people are followers of Jesus Christ. They're believers. I notice he uses this word saints, you know, and he, he almost uh, isolates some people with this. He says, to the saints and faithful brothers. But uh, I think a, a better uh, uh, transition would be, uh, or translation might be the holy and faithful brothers, putting all of these adjectives together. And the word saint, can we go over this just one more time? You know, we know that uh, Catholicism much makes much of this word, and it is a high, but the Bible says if you've trusted in Christ, you are a saint. You know, when you think of the song, when the saints come marching in, hey, baby, you can march with that band if you've trusted in Christ. The saints are the people who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. And so the, the word saint itself means set apart. There is a unique divide throughout all of the world. It's not by the color of your skin or the language you speak. It is your response to Christ's death on the cross and resurrection from the dead. There are those who have trusted in Christ and those who have not. And that's all those who have been trusting in Christ are set apart from all of the world. They are children of God. And so the recipients, they are, they are saints. They are believers. They are brothers. And I notice also the word faithful is used here. Now, Paul is not one to throw around this word. When he addresses a, a, a community of believers, it always starts the same way with some doctrine. Let's talk about the truth. And Paul will spend about half of the book, sometimes a little more, talking about doctrine, talking about God and sin and salvation and faith. And then he'll take the second half of the book and talk about how we ought to live in light of these truths. Because good thinking lives to good living. Good thinking, right thinking, orthodoxy. That's a word that uh, sounds like an 85-cent word to be thrown around, but orthodoxy is a simple word. Um, You've heard of an orthodontist, okay? Those are the people who straighten teeth. 
ortho means to straight, okay? But doxy means glory or praise. It has to do with right thinking or doctrine. Orthodoxy is correct beliefs about God and all of the things of God. And so Paul refers to this church as faithful. That's the kind of word that I crave. You know, one day I'm going to assume room temperature and the calls are going to go out and people are going to join me at a funeral home. They'll talk to my family and they'll tell stories about my corny, ridiculous jokes that you couldn't resist. (laughs) But one of the words that I want to be said at my funeral is that he was faithful. And what I mean by that is that I, I believed what Jesus said, all of it, and I acted on it. And not just the easy stuff, the stuff that, uh, that nobody can see except for God. He was faithful. Paul heard something about this church, that they knew the truth and they lived it out consistently and faithfully. Was it a perfect church? Well, be honest with you, Paul wouldn't have written them if they were. They wouldn't have needed it. But Colossae, small town, filled with believers, brothers, faithful, following Christ. And another aspect here that uh, that that you could incur from, from Paul's calling. He was called as the apostle to the Gentiles, and this is a Gentile church. And one of the things as you study through this book of Colossians, you'll notice, is there are no Old Testament references. Now, Paul often refers back to the Older Testament. There's no struggle with the law here. No Judaizers saying you got to obey the Old Testament law if you want to be a New Testament Christian. There is no struggle in the book of Colossians with these things. And so these, these folks like you and I, they're Gentiles. Not a drop of Jewish blood in them. And then we answer the question, why did he write it to begin with? We know who it is that wrote it. We know to whom they, who it is that received it. But again, the question belies, why did you write it? And that, that uh, leads to the question, what was the occasion? And the fact was there was a heresy that had arisen among the church folk. Which means a heresy is nothing but a falseness about God and the things of God being taught among the body of Christ, a heresy. This heresy would later develop into Gnosticism in the second century. Gnosticism is is not uh, obvious by its word what it means, but but there was a belief uh, about Gnosticism. The very word itself belies what it is. Gnosticism is is, uh, rooted in the word Gnostic, or gnosis, it means knowledge. And, and it taught that there was a secret special knowledge. You know, there's always those secret special people. Oh, you have the Bible? Well, that's nice. 
but we got knowledge over here, and you want to come and get some of this, you know? And, and, and that was kind of the root of the whole heresy, that God's Word and His revelation was not sufficient, but there had to be something more. And isn't that the motto of our world today? Whatever I got in this hand, I want more for this hand. And within the church, it kind of crept in. And later it would be full-blown Gnosticism in the, uh, this was just the roots of it starting to, uh, starting to grow. And so Paul wrote this letter to correct it. Specifically, there was, there's some, uh, it would later, it, it contains several characteristics that, uh, that I think are good to know as we read this. Because if we read it with these lenses on, we'll say, ah, I know why he's writing that. Oh, he wrote this because they fell into this aspect. So a, a couple of characteristics. A, it was Jewish. It was stressing the need for observing the Old Testament laws and ceremonies, but it was also philosophical, laying uh, emphasis on some special, deeper knowledge. You know, you go, oh, you know, that's nice. It's true, and yeah, it'll change your life, but it's not very deep. You got to know the secret stuff back here. It involved the worship of angels. It's funny how that has crept out uh, into uh, our culture every now and again. A few decades pass, and there it is again. I remember uh, in the 90s, I think everybody had a little angel on their coat, you know, and it's said, well, it's, it's, just, it's just not an angel. I mean, it's just a button, but it reminds me that I have a guardian angel. I defy you to find some place in the Bible that says you have a guardian angel. What you have is a great high priest who knows what you're going through, a God who providentially works in your life moment after moment. Does he ever dispatch angels? For Of course he does. But, but don't put your faith in an angel following you around, friends. Put your faith in God. Angel, created being, just like you, only different. You can talk about that at your dinner tonight. <laughs> And, uh, and so it, it, it involved uh, the worship of angels. It was exclusivistic. Well, you know, not everybody can be a part of us. And you want to be part of us, don't you? You remember that from elementary school? <laughs> you were in or you were out. And everybody wanted to be in. It didn't matter what in was. You just didn't want to be out. But it was also Christological. Which simply means they talked a lot about Jesus, but not the God of the Bible, not the God-man. You see, like today, people, they, they like to do these studies about Jesus, you know, and say, hey, you know, I know the Bible says he wasn't married, but, you know, he had to be married, and so we're going to find something with us. Uh, maybe it was one of the ladies that was in the Bible. Yeah, he's probably married, to, and they've they, they got to create their own stories, it seems that the Bible is never enough. Yeah, but they're talking about Jesus. Isn't that good? Yeah, that's exactly how the demons work. It's the skin of the truth stuffed with a lie. And you must be wary of it, my friends. Just because someone's talking about Jesus doesn't mean they're saying the truth about him. And so, uh, so the seminal Gnosticism denied the deity of Christ. Well, he's a man. I mean, he's a really good guy. But he's not God. And so they, they, they were calling forth for one of the greatest declarations of Christ's deity found anywhere in Scripture. And that's why we have Colossians. That's why the center of it all is Jesus. 
And so when we study Colossians and Paul is talking about Jesus like there's no tomorrow, you say, hey, what's going on? He's responding to the lies being told about him. Isn't it funny that we have so precious a revelation from God, filled with wondrous teaching, and the great majority of it is born out of error. It's, it's like the sand in the, inside the oyster, that through that, irritation becomes the great pearl. God shaping and working and making it into something wonderful. I'm glad that God has done that into my life. Has He done that in your life? Taken something rough and undesirable and made it into something wonderful? I hope He has. You can't play with Jesus and get that. It's all or nothing, friends. All or nothing. Well, we got the heresy that arose, developed into Gnosticism, these characteristics. And the, the, the final question that we want to answer here this morning is, is perhaps the most important for us. Why should we bother? I mean, really, if, if somebody snatched out the letter to the Colossians, what would we lose? I mean, why does this even matter? Well, Colossians is categorized by high Christology. There are some things, the teaching in, in Colossians, that we don't have anywhere else. Some specifics about Jesus that we need to know. He is the exalted creator. He is the redeemer. and He is central to all belief and behavior. Some, some singularly Christological books centered on the, the cosmic Christ. We find that Jesus is the head of all principality and power. He is the Lord of creation, the author of reconciliation. He is the basis of the believer's hope, the source of the believer's power for new life. He is the believer's redeemer and reconciler. He embodies the full deity. He is the creator and sustainer of all things. He is the head of the church, and he is the resurrected God-man. If that doesn't excite you, friends, something's wrong. We're going to dive in and see nothing but Jesus in this letter. And now, I don't know about you, but my soul craves Jesus. My soul says, you stuff me with all kinds of things, but what I want is Jesus. And if your soul is not there today, it is my hope and my continued prayer that as we work our way through this letter, you will get there where you will find yourself unsatisfied with anything the world offers instead. And the only thing that you will crave is more Jesus. Bible scholars have concluded that Colossians is the most profound letter that Paul had ever written. It is exceedingly Christ-centered and wrong doctrine lives, leads to wrong living. Wrong doctrine leads to wrong living. If you are struggling, if you are choosing things that you believe are the best things, 
and you end up bankrupt and hurting, your belief system is wrong. You're thinking about God. You're thinking about His Son. You're thinking about this Christian life is not right. And you set yourself up for failure. Wrong doctrine always leads to wrong living. Because we always act on what we truly believe. Not what we say we believe, but always what we really believe. We sin because we believe with all our heart. At least at that time, what we're going to do is good for us. We snatch it off the shelf. We speak out of anger. Whatever it is you've done, friends, out of sin, you did it because at the moment you believed it would be the best thing for you, and it could not be further from the truth. We only really experience the real life that Jesus died to give us when we truly believe that following him is always the best thing for us. When we truly believe that, is when it's truly happening in our life. When our choices are clearly made to follow Him, regardless of what is threatened, regardless of what else calls us, we always choose Jesus. It is then that we find the fulfillment, the satisfaction, the joy that passes understanding, peace that reigns in our life, only when we choose Him and Him alone. Friends, that's the book of Colossians. So I want to challenge you here. In the weeks to come, it's a short book. There won't be much of it. But I want to challenge you to read this letter. I want to challenge you not just to read it, but to know it. To be conversant in the letter to the Colossians. You know what's in chapter 1 and chapter 3 and chapter 2? Because you know it. It's not Romans, friends. It's not Corinthians. It's Colossians. It's a couple of postcards. Know it. Read it and know it. I want you to talk to one another about it. Hey, did you see what's in chapter 3 there at the end? I mean, what, what are your thoughts about that? I want you to talk about it. I, I mean, really, rearrange some stuff in your life. Forget about the TV shows coming on or going off or the ones you're watching on Netflix. Yeah, we know you know those. I want you to know Colossians. And really, if there's a book to know, how about we start here? Get to know it. And then finally, I want you to ask God, throughout the day and every day, to speak to you from this letter in a personal, profound, specific way. The Spirit of God using the Word of God to direct the child of God that he might conform him to the character of the Son of God. Let's start here. It's just that simple. Yeah, it's one more of those easy things that you know you really should do. But the battle is, do you really want to do it? Ask God to speak to you from this letter and to convince you once and for all to follow him with all your heart. Let's pray. Father.
We've talked about Colossians. We've talked about you. But mostly, it feels like this sermon has been about us and what we will do with you and what we're really doing with this life. God, I'm guessing there's a lot of frustrated people in this room. It feels like they were oversold. Christianity made a lot of promises. But there's still a lot of emptiness in us. So God, it is my prayer for every one of us in this room. And God, perhaps some invited to join us along the way. That we will make a stand. And we will say enough. And we will follow hard after you. God, I know that we're going to fail along the way. But God, I pray, help us never to give up. God, we are here because you are holding on to us, not because we're holding on to you. So God, bring about great change in our life here. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.